0: Hi, my name is Jim Lewis. And my name is Chris Painter. Welcome to Inside Cyber Diplomacy.
1: Between the two of us, I think we know almost everyone involved in cyber diplomacy and the idea behind this is really to have frank conversations with those leaders in this area and bring that to the rest of the world, this new area of diplomacy, and talk to these leaders about what's going on. Our plan is that you'll hear things on this podcast that you're not going to hear anywhere else. Frank, not scripted, direct conversations. Hope you like it. I know we will. So please listen in.
0: So once again, Inside Cyber Diplomacy, and this time it's just Chris and I doing a wrap-up of 2021, which was a very busy year for cybersecurity. And we're going to touch on a lot of the topics.
1: Yeah, special edition, you know, I, I suppose we should have some kind of like special effects, but we don't. And it Sorry. has been, I think, a banner year for uh, both cyber diplomacy and cyber threats. And and one thing we'll cover that I think is you know, the biggest movement is, you know, for Jim and I and many of our listeners who've been toiling in the vineyards in these, this area for many, many years, you know, I think this is the year where things really broke through, that, that we've gotten to the point that this is a no-kidding, political, national security, economic priority. We'll see. It could be another flash in the pan. But, you know, interestingly, the whole ransomware epidemic and how that's raised awareness has been really interesting to watch. So you know, already we're seeing a little retrenchment from that, but, but I think that that's been a key thing. But really in terms of all threats and diplomacy and, and, and you know, substantive outcomes, this has been an amazing year. We'll, we'll cover it all today or cover as much as we can.
0: Starting at the top it was the year of what will probably be the last GGE, the last group of government experts. And in part, that's because the first OEWG, open-ended working group, was so successful and created the regular institutional dialogue that most UN members wanted. In fact, probably all UN members wanted. So we saw a year of transition. They didn't make much substantive progress, frankly. They kind of just reendorsed the 2015 norms, but, they were successful in the OEWG by creating a regular dialogue. As I think it's moved the ball forward significantly.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I think we, you know, I know I was, I think you were, I think many were skeptical in the beginning that these conflicting processes of the OEWG and the GG would work. But what struck me is how excited a lot of these countries who don't participate in these issues were to participate in this discussion. And how much many of them, not all of them, but many of them really jumped in with both feet and started talking about that. And that's good for everyone if we get that, that larger coverage. Now, I agree with you. I think the OEWG didn't do a whole hell of a lot substantively, but the, the advantage was getting substantive engagement or you know, actual real engagement by all these countries and then reaching a consensus. You know, it's too bad in a way that the GG is going away because that's been the crucible that's to me, that's like what the G8 used to be or the G7 used to be. It's, it's a place to cook things up and then move to a broader venue. And I think it showed its value this time, too, because it it, it actually put a lot of meat on the bones with things that were agreed before in a way I didn't think it would either. So I think the the challenge with the OEWG is now we have this regular institutional dialogue, but there's a lot of challenges in how it goes forward with a five year you know Star Trek like mission yeah. to, uh, yeah. to go forward.
0: Well, you've actually got three initiatives in the UN. You've got the eternal OEWG. When we had uh, Undersecretary Nakamitsu on, uh, mm-hmm. she said she was actually optimistic and she thought they would do something every year. You know, other people say, no, everyone will wait until the last year and then do something. So we'll see, but I like her optimism. We've yeah. got the Program of Action,
1: well, which yeah, is I- a
0: French proposal. But then, And then the Russian... Uh, You'll love love this one. It touches you directly. The Russian Cybercrime Convention, which I still haven't, they're trying to foozle the rules, so it's not consensus. They they said something in their statement, well, it, it will be set up in a way that no one country can block consensus. Good luck, Chuck. But we've got three new things that grew out of the successes at the GGE and OEWG
1: you know, I look at it as kind of two currents that were going at the same time. I mean, this is the whole cybercrime convention thing is not new, as you know, Jim. I mean, I remember like 10 years ago, they dropped their model convention at Ekaterina, I think, um, during a a meeting they were holding of like national security advisors. So, So they've been active in promoting this for a long time. And the US and other countries have pushed back pretty strenuously and made the argument, which I think is a pretty good one, that look, we can't spend five years doing a new cybercrime convention where we need you know, capacity building now, we need to work now, we, we need to have some common laws in place. But that battle is over now. Now we're, now we're negotiating. I think it's a real open question of whether any kind of meaningful consensus can be reached on something that is actually valuable. So yes, you might be able to reach a consensus on something that's milk toast, but can you come up with something that is at least as strong as the Budapest convention? I, I have my doubts. I mean, I, I look, I hope that will happen. I think this answers the complaint I've heard for many years when I was in the government from countries like India and Brazil and others, although I hear Brazil is moving closer to actually signing on to Budapest, that, you know, it wasn't invented here. We didn't have a, an actual chance to negotiate. And so why should we adopt it? So now they have their chance. But, you know, Russia and China's view of what's a cybercrime differs from you know, the U.S. and, and uh, the like-minded countries view, and it goes to content issues. And in the Middle East, there are religious uh, speech issues. I mean, this is going to be a very difficult couple of years in getting through this, I think. And, and I think it's going to be hard, frankly, for, you know, there's been very good work, as you know, to keep what's happening in the first committee separate from what's happening in the third committee. That one's cybercrime, and that's a different set of issues, and the other is stability and nation-state actions. But with proxy actors, with uh, due diligence that's come up with, with the ransomware actors in terms of what states have responsibilities to do, I think it's going to be awfully hard to keep those tracks separate. And I don't think the, the Russians in particular want to keep them separate. So we'll we'll see what happens.
0: The other big development for me, at least, was the Chinese moving out in a way they haven't done before. They almost floated a resolution in the first committee. Uh, I think what happened is they tested the waters and found there wasn't a lot of support for it, but uh, much more assertive uh, Chinese diplomacy. Some coordination with the Russians, it's not perfect, but the Chinese are playing a bigger role. Why do you think they're doing that?
1: Well, it's interesting. Both of us have seen this evolution over the years where, you know, first China was basically sitting in the back row and would you know, intervene if they needed to, but they usually let other people carry their waters. And they, I think they've become much more aggressive. And I think it's a level of maturity. I think they, they feel more confident in their positions. As you know, now, five years ago, they came up with their own international strategy, which they they very carefully made sure the entire government was on board, including the PLA and others. They, you know, they feel confident in their positions. And I think they feel more confident in their power to, to get some of those positions through. So, you know, we always talk about cyber in this kind of bubble, but I think it really reflects China's larger geopolitical views that they are now being more sort of on the world stage across the board, you know, in some ways that are very difficult, uh, in some ways that may be productive, we'll see. But this is an example of their larger policy, I think.
0: The um, point that they seem to join with the Russians and with other countries is on the, the reassertion of sovereignty and the reassertion of the sovereign role of states. And you saw that in the OEWG. You're seeing it in the run-up to this next OEWG, the, the, um, not allowing the multi-stakeholder community to participate, which was Russia and China the last time. And th- there's a lot of countries that are ambivalent on this. I mean, they would prefer to see governments play a larger role. I, I don't think it's politically sustainable, but uh, the Chinese and the Russians do have this alternate vision for how cyberspace should work. And they've been much more aggressive this year in moving out on it.
1: Yeah, I mean the initiative you talked about was China's you know, privacy uh, legislation they're doing internally, which you know has some connections to other privacy legislation, but also goes a much different direction. And they're trying to really make what they do global standards. So that's part of the what's going on too. I, you know, I do worry about that. That you know how obviously states at the end of the day are going to make the decisions of these things. And and for states, you know, only states can restrain state action. Only states can do some of the things that are called for in these documents. But I think it's a mistake to exclude other stakeholders uh, for many reasons, including that, you know, there's the the chance you just miss things because the other stakeholders understand the technology better than diplomats do, frankly, uh, or even states do often. And, And You know, it's this pent up demand, which I think at the end detracts a little bit from the legitimacy of the outcomes. If you don't have those other stakeholders there, they're constantly both fighting to get in, but also saying what you're doing is not informed. What you're doing is not right. You don't understand what you're, you know, what the implications are. I
0: think legitimacy is the key point here, because you need politically, you just need to have them in the room. And I thought the Russians were kind of drifting towards that at the end of the OEWG, but I'd hope that they're drifting away.
1: And look, I'm part of the civil society groups, too, in terms of what I do with the the Global Forum on Cyber Expertise. And I think all of us want to have that ability. And when we did get that ability the last time, you know, I think we made the most of it and, and had some impact. I fear what's going to happen is, you know, the Singaporean share will try to do what they can, but it's a state-driven process. And so Echo Stock, you know, you can't get easily... Certify as an ECOSOC thing—it's almost you know impossible in the short term. It,
0: it, it is the UN. Uh, You—you've probably seen the letter that's floating around to yes. encourage I the chair. <laughs> Good. yeah, I did too, uh, in my personal capacity. The authors of the letter seem to think they're going to get a compromise, like what we had the last time, which was you know the start fifteen minutes late, so people could speak beforehand and then have the side meeting that was open. The, the David so skillfully chaired so um it's a shame and i i don't fully under it's it's a strong belief at least on the chinese side that you know these people should not be having a voice in this
1: well i mean i think part of it is you know we have to address some of the the concerns which is look it just can't be western companies it just can't be western civil society groups you want to get broader participation so i think that would help and i think we've we've done some of that i think the 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 other issue is it's going to end up, like the last time, being up to states to incorporate some of those views in their submissions. So Australia, uh, Joanna Weaver was really good, their their process of incorporating other stakeholders' view, Canada with their Let's Talk Cyber series, which was good. I think the more of these states that do processes like that, like I'd love to see the U.S. do that. I'd love to see the U.S. have a more structured way of dealing with the multi-stakeholder community in addition to all the conferences and other things they do. I think it's valuable to get that input and i suspect in this administration you're going to see that uh we'll see as you know the reorganization unfolds but i think that will be something and you've already seen this in the third committee so yeah and the third committee um the part of state that's that's taking the lead on that uh inl has put out something in the federal register saying you know we want to consult with people you know let us know they've gone one session already so i think I think more of that, not just the, you know, not just Australia, Canada, but the US taking a lead in that, UK, the Dutch, others, that helps. It's not a, a solution, yeah. but it at least gets you partway there.
0: You touched on two topics I want to come back to, uh, Joanna, and uh, I can't remember, but whatever it was, we'll come back to it. Oh, state, state reorganization. How could I forget? But before we move away, um, we need to talk about one multi-stakeholder thing, the Paris call. Yeah. which uh, the U.S. refused to sign a couple years ago. I thought that was mainly uh, procedural fouls by the French. The French sent the document a little bit beforehand and said, here, yeah. take it or leave it. Unsurprisingly, a lot of big countries said, no way, Jose. But this year, I think that it was a little smoother. There's a, definitely a different spirit in Washington. We wanted to placate the French a little bit because of AUKUS. Mm-hmm. So yeah. uh, where do you put... I, I've always been a little suspicious of it, in part because it's tied closely to the Digital Peace Institute, which, you know, you know an initiative that doesn't engage the Russians or the Chinese is, is not always going to have as much impact as you might hope. But where do, you, where do you rank the Paris Peace Call? It's a good thing. So it's a good way to get people on the same page.
1: You and I, we all had this debate when we were all members of the Global Commission on the Stability of Cyberspace because the Global Commission signed on. I forgot about that. Yeah. And so we, we talked in that commission about should we sign on? What's the value of it? And I think, you know, we said then still holds that it's, it's greatest value to me is it is awareness raising exercise to get more penetration. So now they have, I don't know, you know, hundreds and hundreds of stakeholders signing uh, lots of different countries. That's good. Some still big emissions like India and others. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think it says anything dramatically new that hadn't been said before. There are a couple things like no hackbacks that the commission talked about, but hadn't been stated U.S. I mean, I think it was stated U.S. policy, but not in stone.
0: It's um, actually U.S. law. So, yeah,
1: well, it's U.S. law. But but yeah, I mean, for U.S. residents, yeah, uh, under 1030. But but, I, yeah. you know, I think um I think ultimately it's a good thing from that standpoint. Uh, the working groups that have been formed uh, under it—I mean, this is one thing everyone's always worried about. You, you know, conferences and working groups are, are never destroyed; they're only created, right? You start—it's like the opposite of matter. Matter is never—you know—it's never created or destroyed. This never—you never destroy something. And indeed, there are all these working groups, but. I participated a little bit in some of them, and I found them actually to be useful to get the various stakeholders together and to you know come up with some thoughts that could be helpful to yeah. these UN processes.
0: Yeah, so, I was in the one that did uh, security and confidence, like I think it was working group four, and it actually was pretty good. You know, they had uh, good co chairs, uh, and it it covered some good ground.
1: Yeah, I did, I think, the norm was one and the multi stakeholder one. I thought they were useful. The the and, and so I think the process is useful. Uh, you know, the Paris Peace Forum this year. Uh, They highlighted a project that the African Union and my GFC group is doing on capacity Mm -hmm. building in Africa. So I think it could be very valuable to raise this to a political level, which is what we need. But but also, you know, I do worry that it's not the only game in town. I can't think of this as the only game in town It is a good multi-stakeholder group. Um, And what happens whenever Macron leaves? You know, this is his baby. Right. Will this still have that? You know, I, I'd say it's sort of his baby and Brad Smith's baby to some extent, and and if Macron is not there as the political leader, because I think one of the reasons a lot of European countries signed on, even when they were like, I don't know if we want to sign on, was because it was Macron and they were trying to you know be a good European group. Um, I think maybe it's mature enough now; it can last even without that political push. But, but we'll see. But I, ultimately, I we'll think see. it's thing, in in the sense, it's another effort that can contribute to this multi-stakeholder look at this, but I think you need more states participating in those working groups. And mostly non-states that have been part of that.
0: My impression is that the uh, French saw the uh, previous administration as an opportunity to push forward the ideas of a uh, sovereign Europe, uh, an autonomous Europe, strategic autonomy, all the things, digital sovereignty. Uh, it led by France, right? Yeah. Uh, France, perhaps in partner with others, but with Merkel leaving, and that opportunity was sort of snatched from them with the change of administration. So there's a little bit of grumpiness. I don't yeah. know. I don't know if that will survive. I don't know if oh, it will survive I Macron.
1: I, th- I think some. I don't know if the initiative will survive Macron, but I think the kind of digital protectionism. I mean, that's something that I think is more ingrained, and there is a view of U.S. companies as being out of control you know this digital markets act for instance in the eu is is going to happen i think and that yeah aim yeah. squarely at u.s companies not just there's no you're now added a broader group i think but but not you know by I, much not by much not by much to be sure but i think that's it does raise this issue of europe i think cares about sovereignty for economic purposes and sometimes privacy purposes where russia and china care about it for political yeah. and dissent purposes and you know, you have, to under, you have to kind of pull those apart because I agree with you. I think Russia and China and China in particular is much more pushing on the, the absolute sovereignty issue.
0: We raised briefly the issue of changes in personnel. Uh, I'll just, I'll, this is a plug. She didn't pay me to say this, but Joanna <laughs> Weaver's departure is a huge blow because she was instrumental in getting the OEWG to success. And her nights spent in Irish bars, drinking with the Russians qualifier for some kind of medal, um, <laughs> if nothing else, but... Uh, One with rubies we, in it? Like r- r- yeah, yeah, with rubies, <laughs> three rubies. Um, the, it, who else has got... The, we're, there's more changes in the works, but we're yeah. seeing a turnover in cyber diplomacy.
1: You know, I really miss Joanna. I mean, she's still active in, in new roles and capacity building and other things, so she's staying with the program, which is good, but... I think she was incredibly instrumental. And there's a lot of really good, you know, if you think back that this kind of field really kind of started in earnest 10 years ago. Um, and you look at the number of players and talented players are, there are now, you know, Helly, uh, Toby, all, the, you know, many people we've interviewed on the show. It's pretty astounding. I mean, in terms of that growth. And, and I think the positive nature of this is if this is really a mature area then we will, in fact, uh, have people leave. I mean, that's what happens generally. And, you know, ambassadors, mm-hmm. other people, they cycle through in three-year or four-year or two-year increments. So if we can get people, new people in and they can hit the ground running, that's great. I used to criticize my, my colleagues in Japan because they had great cyber ambassadors, but they lasted like a year and they were gone.
0: <laughs> the problem with that is that you're only allowed so many words in the GGE reports And so every, but you have to list everybody who was in the group. And so every time the (laughs) Japanese changed, I said, please pick a guy with a short name. We've only got 7,500 words and we're eating up, we're eating up, you know, a quarter of them on the darn participant list.
1: Well, I, I, you know, I was, uh, I I actually told this to one of my Japanese colleagues after we did our, one of our bylaws when I was in state, and he pulled me aside and said, oh, by the way, I'm leaving next week. But yeah, you know, the last one was there for quite some time through this whole process. I think an it's excellent, just,
0: an excellent. Uh,
1: yeah, and and look,
0: that, to replace. Yeah. And
1: that, but that was the thing that I was going to point to. I've been very impressed that even when they were cycling through people pretty quickly, the new person would come in and hit the ground running. Understand this, get it, and that's what we need, right? We, I, you know, yeah. we need to make this so that it's an ordinary foreign policy issue that people can step in and pick up quickly and and move forward. And so maybe the field is maturing. Maybe that's what it's showing to us.
0: And on those lines, uh, after a um, considerable period of reflection, the uh, State Department has come out with what I think is a pretty good organizational uh, expansion of the cyber and emerging technologies portfolio. It's It shows a seriousness. They've got an assistant secretary, they've got a tech envoy, uh, positions not filled as of this podcast, but a good structure, uh, what do you
1: yeah. think? You know, I think they, they landed in the right place. I was I was critical of, yeah. I mean, I was very critical of Pompeo's uh, structure, especially in the way he did it on the way out the door after sort of starving it for three years um, or two years. Uh, Tillerson starved it even more. But, but, you know, this very much reflects, I think the organization that we see in the Cyber Diplomacy Act, which I also, you know, worked with the Hill on. Um, and the two things, the two, I think, core things I wanted to see, and I would have thought it was a failure if it didn't do this, is A, be at a high enough level that it could actually coordinate and knock heads, you know? So if you put in any of these stovepipes at State, and you and I know there are many stovepipes in State, um, that if you put it at a high level, deputy level, secretary level, maybe political undersecretary level, it has that cross-cutting capability. And they did that, at least for now. You know, I, I imagine the internecine fights are still happening at State mm. about- who wants it and how, you know, and different equities and stuff like that. But putting it under Wendy Sherman, who gets this issue. I mean, I worked with Wendy when she was at, when we were both at State, and she was the one who tasked all the regional bureaus to do uh, cyber engagement strategies, which was.
0: She also, she also didn't pay us to say this, but that was really a pretty smart move. I mean, she has a lot on her plate as D, but uh, she takes this issue. So it was a good good pick to have the new thing report up to her.
1: And and as a practical matter, you know this, too, although I reported to the secretary when I was there, you don't deal with the secretary every day. No one deals with the secretary every day. So if you really need the secretary, you can do it and you go to the staff meetings. But but the person I worked with most was, you know, with Tony and Bill Burns and Jim Steinberg uh, before that. And so this practically makes sense, too. Um, So, yeah, she has lots on her plate which is a, a downside, but she actually does care about this issue. The good side. So so that, and then the other watchword I was looking for is breadth. So if it was narrowly focused just on international security issues, um, you know, those are important issues. Obviously, we talk about this all the time. But I think, you know, when, I, when my office was created, we deliberately had a broader mandate because we recognized that there were cross dependencies between these issues that, you know, when the the Russians talk about internet governance, they're talking about human rights issues and security issues. When they talk about security issues, it's a broader mandate. So if you don't have a place where that all comes together, you know, you're going to end up with fights within the department. It's going to be very unclear. And so having it cover not just the straight security issues, but some of the, you know, internet governance issues and also the human rights issues, to me, makes sense. Now, the weird... Thing I didn't anticipate was a sort of new technology special envoy.
0: But, I was just going to talk about that. Yeah. That's what I think the problem is, is that cyber, and this came up with our talks with our Chinese friends, the definition of cyber security and cyber is expanding. And it's expanding because it's being driven in part by some of these emerging technologies. So there is a, that's part of why I like this organization is that the, they may not fit perfectly together, but it is clearly the direction that things are moving. And so having two DAS-level entities covering ET and cyber kind of makes sense, along with the, covering the human rights and internet governance. Yeah,
1: I, 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 you know, I, the way it was explained to me, and this makes sense to me, is that if you put it all on the, the cyber person, that that's just too much that, that you know and then there are things that there are new technology they're not cyber like bio and other things that you know that that are not straight cyber stuff so the the important thing to make that work so i agree splitting it off makes sense uh and it wasn't really addressing the cyber diplomacy act i mean i, I this was a, a newer issue that came up at the same time i think having close coordination between those positions makes sense so again having them both report to wendy sherman makes a, a good deal of sense to me yeah. so so I, I don't think I, you know, I had really any quibble with the way they did it. I mean, I found it easy to be a supporter of it because it it really reflected all the things I thought they should do. And at times, I wasn't sure that was the direction it would go. Um,
0: that was kind of amazing. It really came out really, really well. And if you look at some of the previous secretaries, that was not a guaranteed result at all. So we've done all the happy face stuff, and it has been a really good year for cybersecurity. When you think of the international agreement, when you think of the U.S. doing things, and we can talk about that. When you think about the State Department and the maturation of the field, which is what we saw in the OEWG every, every day I met. Let's talk a little bit about the less happy face side, because this is the year we got global agreement again on the 2015 norms. Thank you. Congratulations. Uh, And the next thing people said is, whoa, what happens if people don't observe the norms? And unfortunately, we've seen um, a fair amount of that. So uh, the idea of consequences, the idea of attribution, the idea of uh, doing this in a way that's consistent with international humanitarian law, these have all come to the fore this year, because we have norms, we don't need any more norms, for the most part, but um, we have this problem of accountability.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, someone jokingly said to me about our podcast recently that we always end on deterrence. So we're not ending on deterrence this time, because this is... Uh, this you, you know
0: here. I love deterrence. I love <laughs> ideas from the 1950s. It's like television shows from the
1: 1950s. And, and Deterrence and my, is
0: the Aussie and Harriet of cybersecurity. My our
1: argument to you is that when well, when we actually talk <laughs> about this issue, when we talk about accountability and consequences we really are talking about deterrence with another name you know so uh it's not nuclear deterrence to be sure it's nothing let's
0: set up a solarium commission
1: oh wait how
0: many times can you do a solarium commission
1: three i think we've done that we've done two cyber ones so we did one in the end of the bush administration so um you
0: can never have too many because they've they paved over the swimming pool you know or turned it into the dining room or something in in the east wing i don't that's I think that's out. where it is. I think that's, uh, that's
1: yeah. I think that's where uh, the swimming pool is gone, sadly. Uh, so, look, I think um, this is going to be the hard thing, and 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 then lots of people have raised this. And said, look, it's and it is great that we have rules of the road. And it's great we've got acceptance, and and I reject oh, people who no, say no
0: doubt about it. You get people who say, well, the norms don't mean anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I of course they do. That.
1: Yeah, I hate yeah. that. You can edit that. They out. A,
0: it's a framework <laughs> for responsible state behavior, and now we can say, hey. Here's the lines. You folks are not playing it within the, the lines. Yeah, it's, a, absolutely. It's, I
1: mean, it's a rallying cry. It, it's now saying, look, even the countries that we view <laughs> as adversarial have agreed to this, and we can hold them to account. Now, people say, oh, they're only voluntary, non-binding. But you know, they're political commitments. And so I, yeah. I don't have a problem with that.
0: One of the triumphs of the OEWG, and Eric Glauber, who we've had on the show, deserves a lot of credit for yeah. this, is that he got politically binding commitments you know, when people say they're not binding, of course they're binding. All UN member states have agreed twice to observe yeah. them.
1: Well, and, and that's right. That's why I, you know, I don't know what a treaty does for us now. I mean, maybe in the future, yes, but now. Well, it's on nicer paper. It's on nicer paper and better ribbons, but I, <laughs> but but I, but I do think the the accountability piece is the missing piece, and and there is where I get less optimistic. That I don't think the UN has the stomach or really the ability to talk about accountability because that becomes a very political issue very quickly and we saw this even with attribution uh the discussion in the various reports over the years but if you get to accountability and holding countries to account for violations of either international law or these norms i don't i think that's something which has to be done in smaller groups and you know we've said this before we suck at this we are we are we are both individually and collectively bad at this. Um, and and I think that that means we need to think about what tools we're using, what effects we're having. Look, I would go back to the, the Defense Science Board report that Chris Inglis helped write now like six years ago on deterrence where it said, we need to tailor what we're doing if we're gonna try to like either react to or change our adversaries uh, activity to the individual country. And what we do, is we do, you know, when we talk about economic sanctions, which have their place, we do it inconsistently. Um, you know, Derek Poska is a good example. We lifted the sanctions on him uh, and he's a close crony of Putin. We don't go after things and maybe there are reasons we don't go after things that maybe Putin will care about. So we have to think about how we can use all these tools, including our military tools in an effective way. And I don't think we've gotten that. I am heartened by things that like, happened, like the the diplomatic toolkit in the EU. I I was skeptical that all the EU could ever agree together on those things, and they did, which is great. So that kind of collective action seems to me the road forward, but we have a lot to do. And and part of that goes to the issue I raised in the beginning, which is to mainstream this issue. And the comparison I always make is, you know, the Skirpal poisoning. Uh, Theresa May in a week said it was Russia. Theresa May in two weeks had assembled a whole bunch of sanctions. Now, even those sanctions didn't actually go after, like, you know, Holdings in London and stuff like that, so they pulled back a little bit. Um, but then, not petty. It took six and a half months, and when it was announced, they said, "And there will be consequences." You know, so,
0: that, so you know. um, what this is, we we've spent a lot of time on the UN because the UN was particularly busy. I'm glad you brought up the, the European Union, which has done some amazing stuff, including the collective imposition of sanctions. But it's it's worth noting. Uh, final UN point, at least for me. Um, One of the things that's interesting about cyber is that the the most powerful actors in the UN processes have been uh, Johanna Weaver, Michelle Markov, and Heli Tirmaklar from Estonia. So you have three very powerful women driving the process. Heli did a great job when Estonia was chair of the Security Council because for the first time, she got cybersecurity on the Security no. Council agenda. And this was a common refrain you heard from countries. It's, this is so important. Why has it never come up before the Security Council? Helly he nailed that one. No. So what do you think's next in collective action? I mean, uh, part of it is this is the diplomatic agenda for the U.S. coming no. up, is how do we build collective action? Um, it's not going to be another NATO. It's no. Um, no. But no. it's I, going to be something. And that's where the... The norms are useful because they give you a, an initial starting point, a framework to build collective action.
1: I think it's going to be, you know, what we said even when I was a state, which is the flexible coalition of countries that's like the non-proliferation initiative, that that is, you know, that coalition may change incident to incident. We've been better at exercising the muscle memory to do attribution quicker there are countries that still are very uncomfortable take going beyond attribution there are some countries that are uncomfortable even doing attribution publicly but um but i think they're getting more comfortable with that over time as they're seeing these things hit them um so it's going to depend you know you're not going to be able to get uh i i agree i think a nato is a, a formal kind of organizations it's not going to cut it because there's too much divergence in the way countries think about this I do think we're better off acting collectively than where we are alone. I think it gives us more legitimacy. Um, You know, I think that includes even on our, our cyber operational tools, we should be working with other countries more on those things. But I think we, you know, I do think this is, this is the, this is going to be the future. And then, you know, although you're fond of saying, and this is right, that we haven't really seen escalation, we have to make sure that what we're doing actually doesn't make things worse. You know, that we, we, Go after the bad actors in a way that's going to either change yeah. or respond to their activity without. Well, making-
0: one of the that what I would also say is that this is an escalation as a manageable problem.
1: Yeah, I agree. We all
0: know the diplomatic tools to manage it, and it should not be an excuse for inaction. Which too often, that's in the past been what the result was: is oh, the Russians will be mad if we do something back to them, possibly, um, but we can manage that.
1: Yeah, I, I think that the, dip, the fact that we have diplomatic ties and military ties and intelligence ties and political ties, that's what you used to manage escalation in the physical world and in the cyber world. And, you know, I go back to that famous quote from James Clapper after the, that we didn't do a lot of the things we could do after the election interference because we were, you know, in a glass house and worried about what Russia would do to us. That's not sustainable for any country. of not can't, We can't be so worried about this that we don't take any action because that just makes matters worse you know that just encourages (laughs) any country to get into this war. so so i i'm concerned about this and that ties to the other big story of this year which is the ransomware issue which kind of came out of nowhere uh it's been around for a long time and Uh, and
0: some real success by the white house in pulling together that ransomware coalition
1: and yes it's new
0: you know but that's that's a, a one of the first big efforts that we've seen that grows out of this mature, maturation and deeper understanding so some real progress
1: well and an interesting coalition too the 30 country whatever you call it summit group beating whatever you want to call it uh, they did uh, was significant in the sense that it didn't have all the usual players I mean South Africa and Brazil and others were part of it which is important you know so you, you broadening is so I think that was very important. I think it, the White House orchestrated the Biden going to the G7, Biden then going to NATO, Biden going to the EU, and then Biden meeting with uh, Putin in a very, I think, masterful way. He's
0: done really well on this. I I got a readout of some of those meetings, and uh, he actually was pretty tough. Uh, yeah. It was impressive. So uh,
1: well, this no, is, I...
0: Obama certainly, and you know this very well, yeah. Obama certainly got the importance of cyber, but we were at a very different point internationally there. And yeah. it's nice to see somebody back who's willing to. I was so happy when he didn't say I looked into his eyes and saw his soul. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God. And so he's no fool on that score. I'll tell you that.
1: Well, no. And, and I was impressed You know, when I was in the government and even at the White House. Obama certainly got this, but so did Biden. You know, when we talked we right. issues, Biden got it, asked the right questions. And, you know, Biden was very involved in the China intellectual property theft issues. So it's not this is one of the maturity levels that I see uh, that's come with this administration is instead of having people you have to spoon feed this. You have people like Jake Sullivan as a national security advisor. You have. Ali Muorcas over at DHS. You have you know Wendy and Tony at uh, State who both have dealt with this before. Uh, you have uh, Avril Haynes as the DNI. I mean, you have right. a group of people who've dealt with these issues before, including Biden, and that makes a world of difference, I think. Uh, that's
0: that's the maturation process. So one thing we did miss is we missed the uh, Secretary General's uh, Tech Envoy, which oh, is yeah. currently vacant. Uh, they occasionally have meetings that some of us participate in, but. We'll see where that goes. Did we miss anything else? I mean, we didn't uh, talk about solar winds, but we no, don't
1: I, I don't. To. The only thing I'd say about that is the whole year started off with a bang with solar winds and the Microsoft Exchange the server hack, and then of course the collective attribution around those was important too in a diplomatic way. So, so this has been an active year in terms of threats as well, uh, and and. And this one other thing I'd say about ransomware, I mean, an open question now is, is uh, Russia going to take action or not? You know, Biden sort of put a line in the sand, said time will tell. Well, time is ticking. So, you know, that's going to be something we're going to watch closely going into next year, obviously. Yeah. I think that there's all these other things, as you said, Jim, there's the IGF coming up uh, soon. Um, So they're, uh, uh, you know, I think they're trying to Make that a stronger forum. You mentioned the the special envoy, which is vacant, but they're trying to move across a lot of things. So, you know, I think I think this is going to be. You know, I've said this for my own group for the GFC. Is I view this next two years, and I've said this before. So take this with a grain of salt. I do view these next two years as being really critical in this area. I you know I do think we're. I, and I'm not going to use the inflection point thing. I've used that too often in the past, but I think that I do yeah, we think. need some
0: new cliches, Chris. We need Come new... on, get with
1: it. <laughs> <laughs> not wake up calls and not cyber 9-11 or Pearl Harbor. Uh, but...
0: <laughs> Someone told me cyber, um, oh God, what was it? Cyber Hamburg. It was a German speaker, of course. I thought we are, we are really scratching sports fans. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. just give it up. You know, <laughs> it's yeah. not, I, don't, I, I don't think it's going to be a year of inflection, but I think it will be, two years of progress. The issue has matured. There's a strong team in the U S there's a strong team in other countries and people have a framework to work off. So I think we'll see progress inflection. Maybe not, but yeah, definitely.
1: I think that the difference about this year, and I mentioned this in the opening is that now that it has political attention, which was, you know, the reason we have that is because ordinary people for the first time really felt what this meant. It wasn't, it wasn't like they're, your credit card data being taken which the banks reimbursed them for it wasn't you know pii you know, personal information people were concerned about but you know espionage the ordinary person doesn't care about but when you had the gas lines from colonial pipelines when you had the healthcare systems attacked when you had your hamburger processing plant attacked um you know that made it both a personal issue and then a political issue and the biggest thing for me as we move into the new year is can we sustain that momentum can we sustain that level of attention or we slide back. And I'm hopeful, and I agree with you, I think we make a lot of progress if we sustain that level of of political attention and focus. Um, And if we don't, I'm I'm more, you know, skeptical.
0: I'll use another cliche to close us out on, which is uh, momentum. I think we've built up enough momentum. There's some hard problems. The hardest problem is accountability. Uh, And the second hardest problem is building collective action. But we can make progress on both of them. So I'm, I'm very positive uh, for the next couple of years. Uh, Hopefully that'll give us more to talk about because this is the closing episode for 2021. There should be rousing theme music at this
1: point. Sorry about that. Please add, please add rousing theme music. (laughs) Any,
0: any, any final thoughts, Chris?
1: Uh, No, look, uh, I, I reflect on two things. Not only this year has been really momentous, but I mean, this year we had the podcast. We launched the podcast. And and uh and I'd also say not that that's necessarily overly momentous, but but look, I, I want to thank all the guests we've had over the past year. We we've had a really great array of folks uh who are really on the ground floor of these issues and we've had great discussions with them. And you know, I've heard from many people who who listen to this how interesting they find this. Uh you usually find it interesting when Jim and I argue with each other, but also they they find it interesting. You know, they should them. ring
0: a bell whenever we say deterrence. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: but, but, you know, I, I, ha- I personally have found it really interesting to, to and, and just getting a different perspective, having these discussions. So we really look forward to next year. Uh, we plan to be back um, and have a, you know, a, a, a new slate of folks to talk to, maybe some old folks, too. But this is not going away as an issue and really appreciate everyone who listens to us. And uh, please continue to do so.
0: We'll have start up again in January. Thank you for listening. And that's it for this session. Thank you.
1: This podcast is made possible by the generous support of the Cybersecurity Agency of Singapore and the Estonian Ministry of Foreign Affairs.